Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. We're so happy to have you here joining us um, on this cold day. 
and we're very uh, appreciative of all your support and um, we are really excited for the show today. I am alone today. Um, Devin is down with the cold flu something, <laughs> but he and our daughter are not doing well right now. Um, and we definitely did not want to cancel this show because we have such an awesome guest coming on with us. And we wanted to bring you this wonderful information that we're going to cover today on the Doctrine of the Trinity. And we are in the Christmas season, obviously. And the reason that we wanted to do this show is because this is a time um, for us as Christians to really focus and celebrate the birth of our Savior, our Lord, who is God. And there are a lot of attacks um, that uh, come from different areas um, outside of Orthodox Christianity uh, that that basically mm -hmm. attempts to undermine uh, Jesus' deity. And so we wanted to have a special show to deal with this issue and to deal with the Trinity, the doctrine from the Trinity, which is a very misunderstood and um, misrepresented doctrine of Christianity. But we are um, wanting to uh, have an open dialogue about this topic, and we have a wonderful guest with us today. Um, his name is uh, Ross Oman, and he is uh, one of Devin's and my heroes, heroes of the faith. He is an apologist. He has taught graduate courses on apologetics. He has written books um, dealing with different apologetic issues and theological issues. Um, he is a graduate um, of Fuller Theological Seminary. He has um, done doctoral studies with Westminster Theological Seminary. And, Currently is pursuing um, his doctorate uh, or complete, pursuing completing his doctoral dissertation um, at the South African Theological Seminary. Um, he currently is chief um, for religious research as their director of research. And we, when we wanted to discuss this topic, we can't think of anyone better to have on the show to discuss this topic than Rob Bowman. And Rob, are you there with us? I am. Hello. Great. Hi, how are you? All right. Sorry okay, to hear great. Devin is. Uh, sorry to hear about Devin and your uh, child being uh, sick, but uh, hope they'll be yeah, feeling yeah. better soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's we're, here in the Carolinas. There's something going around a bad bug, and um, they've gotten it so far. I'm I'm good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you so. <laughs> I'm trying to stay away, but thank you so much for for your concern and. We are really excited about having you on the show with us today, and just to be, you know, being able to pick your brain and to learn a lot from you. And I know all our listeners are looking forward to that as well. Terrific. Yeah. So, Rob, tell us, um, just on a personal note, tell us some, something about yourself. Maybe I don't know your testimony, or you know, whatever you like to share about yourself um, that maybe a lot of us don't know. Well, sure. Uh, I was raised uh, in a Roman Catholic home, and okay. my own beliefs by the time I was uh, starting college were uh, somewhat uh, undefined and uh, rather humanistic, I think. And I became a Christian, uh, evangelical Christian, uh, uh, in my first year of college and quickly began studying the Bible and trying to understand uh, what the Bible said. And mm -hmm. during my second year of college, uh, I had a very interesting experience. I spent three months 
uh, once a week meeting with an older couple of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who were attempting to uh, teach me uh, Watchtower Doctrine and to convince me that Jehovah's Witnesses had the truth. Uh, we were not doing your typical Watchtower book study. We weren't going through a, a Watchtower publication. Uh, we were having our own theological conversation uh, around the Bible and looking at what the Bible had to say. And I, I, really, I really gave them very serious consideration. I didn't know what the truth was at the time. I was working it through. Uh, but uh, coming out of that experience uh, really kind of propelled me forward into a lifelong study of theology and of various uh, religious groups that deny Orthodox Christian theology, uh, especially dealing with the person of Christ and the nature of God. And so, you know, the rest is pretty much my life. I've <laughs> spent my entire adult life really... Uh, studying these things and talking with people in these various groups and uh, teaching and writing on these subjects and uh, that's what got me into it though was was really working it out uh, for myself trying to understand uh, what the Bible said about these things and being very open to uh, being taught something other than uh, what I had inherited from others Wow that's really neat story. Um, I always like hearing how different apologists came to this field, and so it was a very personal journey for you, um, to which, you know, we're grateful, obviously, that you are, a, you know, a believer in Christ, and that you are now on our team, and that you are defending these precious doctrines and truths that we all hold so very dear, and um, so thank you so much for all your words and studying and, and um, teaching and training. So, <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm first of all, uh, like any Christian, uh, responsible for my own uh, life and my own faith and my own understanding, and uh, is simply as a result of spending a lot of time <laughs> thinking about these, and continuing to study these things, and continuing okay. to to uh, reflect on these questions and, and so forth that uh, that I have come where I am but it, it took a long time and you know these things don't just fall into a person's head automatically oh right and, yeah. uh, so I you know I talk with people sometimes they don't immediately get something and that's fine because they don't eat sleep and drink it like I do as I've told people <laughs> uh, right but, uh, you know I I do. I, I I think about this stuff every day. <laughs> That's great. And it's great that you have a job that you can do this, you know? <laughs> I usually have not, but uh, but right now I do. So, yeah, that's nice. That's great. That's great. Well, let's, you know, again, with this, this topic that we're covering on the Doctrine of the Trinity, um, maybe, because I know you mentioned the Jehovah Witnesses, and I know that we'll, during the interview that we will, address um, them and their beliefs regarding who Jesus is, um, but tell us what your definition would be of the Trinity, well, a general definition of what the Trinity may be. Sure. Or if. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'll try to keep this fairly non-technical, but just, you know, Quiet. lay out the, the, you know, a place to begin anyway. 
The doctrine mm-hmm. of the Trinity affirms that there is one eternal, uncreated God who is the creator of everything else, who is the Lord, sovereign, ruler, judge, king over all that exists outside of himself, and that this one God exists eternally as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how that works out, you know, how that can be and what that looks like, God is unique. God is uh, one of a kind, and somehow this is one eternal divine being, and yet within this one eternal God, there are these three distinct persons that relate to one another in a personal way. They speak to one another. They love one another. They know one another. They seek to glorify one another. Uh, So there's a kind of sociality or relationship among the three persons, and that that relationship is an eternal relationship. It's it's been going on since before creation, and it will go on forever. Uh, and yet, each one is is they're not three gods. Uh, they're not three divine entities that cooperate in some fashion, but they are one eternal Creator God. And again, uh, I I'll just admit that that is a difficult concept Uh, but my conviction is that uh, I need to be prepared in reading the word uh, revealed by the creator of the universe that I might find some things that are surprising to me that I might find that God is difficult to comprehend after all he's God and I'm not and so if in fact uh, you know my prediction would be before I look at the word of the everlasting creator of the universe, my prediction would be that I'm probably going to run into some things that I have a hard time understanding. And if I didn't, right. I would wonder if this really is God talking, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I laugh, uh, say I can't imagine somebody going through the Bible, if it's the word of God, and every page saying, oh sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, <laughs> I, that's what I always thought. Of course, who, who wouldn't agree with that? Well, if, if that was the word of God, uh, you know, what do we need it for? Are we already just confirming our prejudices and opinions, uh, well, telling yeah. us what we already know. That's not, that's not uh, what we would expect. What we'd expect if the Bible is the word of God is that we'd be reading it and we'd be going, really? Huh, that's interesting. Gosh, I never thought of it that way. What do you mean? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> that would be a natural reaction if a creature, especially a fallen creature who has a sin problem, as well as being puny brain compared to God's mind, uh, would be trying to read something that was revealed by the creator of the universe. We'd expect some surprises, some shocks, some paradoxes and mysteries and things that we couldn't quite fully comprehend. Uh, but it, they would be there, and, and we could understand them well enough uh, to live in accordance with the truth, and that's what we have in the Bible. And and in no other revelation, by the way. There is no other uh, uh, scripture uh, in the world that is a viable candidate for that kind of revelation from the God of the universe. Yeah, wouldn't you just be able to... You know, we think about the mind of God and... <laughs> You know how we could never understand the depth of the mind of, of the, the mind of God, but 
yet he does give us uh, his word and what we need to know what we need to know for this life. Right. And, it, you know, like this Christian journey, um, it gets very difficult and, you know, we have no idea what's going on and why we're going through certain things, but yet um, God, you know, at times reveals to us um, later in, in retrospect some of those uh, his divine purposes and some of them we will never know on this earth. But um, that's the right. beauty of, of this Christian journey is, is trusting Him. Well, that's right, and and that that attitude of trust and and uh, faith in what God says uh, mm-hmm. is the key here. If we're going to understand uh, what God says about Himself in Scripture, uh, Augustine, the uh, Church Father, said, mm-hmm. "I do not understand in order that I may believe." but I believe in order that I may understand. Meaning, I don't suspend belief and refuse to accept something that God says until I first understand it. Rather, if I know that God is saying this, then I accept what he says, and I do the best I can with that to try to understand it as much as I can. And I, I, So I want to understand. It's not that I'm not trying to understand it, but I'm, I'm not taking the attitude... I'm not going to believe it unless I first understand it. If you start that way, uh, you're never going to come to grips with biblical theology. Right. That's a great point and a great question. And, you know, and we know through the apologetic methodologies and studies that we have very good reasons to trust um, that God exists. We have very good reasons to trust in the Bible and that it's revelation God to man. So with that, um, we, we have an anchor and a foundation in our lives that we can go to and a source of authority um, that we will only submit to. That's, that's great stuff because, again, and I'm glad that you addressed that the Trinity does not um, equate itself with having three gods and so forth. And so these other straw men that kind of come up in these discussions. And I know that we'll get to that. And I did want to kind of start there with the um, notion that there is one God which does distinguish um, theism from uh, many other belief systems out there. Um, so let's, right. let's talk about that, um, that there is one God, and um, how we can know that through the explicit statements of Scripture, for instance. Well, the Bible tells us this in very many ways. Uh, it tells us flat out that there is one God, one Lord. Uh, it tells us that God... Uh, the Lord Yahweh or Jehovah created the universe by himself Isaiah 44 24 even puts it that way Uh, nobody helped God make the universe Uh, nobody nobody assisted God Uh, he did not subcontract out the creation of the world to a lesser being he made it all himself Uh, and you find this from Genesis to Revelation, that God is the creator, the one who began everything, the one who put everything in its place, who ordained the the laws of the universe, who set things up to to work the way that they do, uh, who created life on this earth, who created man and woman in his image. Uh, It's the Lord God who did all these things. Uh, The heavens are the works of his hands, uh, he is the one that makes the world. Uh, so that's basic. Uh, basic uh, 
Bible 101, uh, there is one creator God who is responsible for everything in the world, who, who made the universe, who made all the intelligent beings that populate existence outside of himself, uh, who uh, runs the world, who is sovereign king and lord and uh, ruler of history, who has a foreordained end toward which he is bringing everything. Uh, there is not uh, so we could contrast this uh, doctrine with some other uh, classic uh, belief systems that are, are not biblical for example dualism says there is a good power and there is an evil power and it is the conjunction of those two that make the world what it is uh, that makes the world an interesting place I guess <laughs> uh, but the <laughs> Good and evil are both sort of equally ultimate powers or realities in, in existence, and you never have one without the other. It's sort of that yin-yang principle. Yeah. Uh, you always have light and darkness. You always have these opposites. And, uh, you know, for some reason we, like, we prefer the good over the evil. We prefer light over darkness, but uh, supposedly, and <laughs> maybe we don't always do that. Uh, but... Uh, you know, really, you have to have both. That's dualism. The Bible rejects that idea outright. There is one God who is responsible for the entirety of uh, of created existence. He is He is the sole creator of all these things. So, uh, when uh, bad things happen, it's not that there was another God out there who got something to happen, and and our God, the good God, missed, messed up or was falling asleep or was busy over in some other galaxy or, you know, just couldn't stop this bad God from... No, no, no. There's one God who's ruling over everything. Now, there are evil beings in this world, including us, for that matter, by nature, by our fallen condition. Uh, there are bad people, there are bad angels, according to the Bible, that do things, uh, but they're not gods, they're not creators, they're not... Uh, they're not power. They're not all-powerful beings like like God is. There's only one all-powerful, eternal, uh, uncreated being, and that's God. So that's the that's the basic biblical uh, concept of God in a nutshell. It's where everything starts. And so when you understand that, then when you look at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit, uh, you have to put it in that context of of biblical monotheism. Now, uh, one other thing that people get confused here, uh, and that is that uh, monotheism does not mean that the Bible could not, in some context, use uh, the word or words that we translate gods in reference to other beings. Uh, every word can be used in different contexts. That's not a problem. But what we mean by monotheism is that there is only one uncreated, eternal, absolute, sovereign deity who rules over everyone and everything, who is responsible for what C.S. Lewis called the whole show, uh, to whom we are all accountable forever and ever, and to whom we should be giving unqualified worship, adoration, love, service, reverence, you know, all of those honors that the Bible talks about us giving to God, he is alone the proper object of those unqualified, absolute 
honors because he alone is the creator of all, the Lord of all. So that's what we mean by monotheism. We're not just talking about a word here. We're talking about a concept, a worldview, and that's basic to biblical doctrine. Again, having knowing that we have a sovereign God and Creator, um, it is, it's not just to worship, and um, we know Him and um, come to know Him in a very personal way. Um, it's amazing to me that He reveals Himself to us and chooses to, um, you know, to dwell with us and to reveal Himself to us. Um, in terms of, I know you were referring to uh, the word God. Um, Sometimes in use in different ways, and one of the objections, obviously, is um, when Satan is referred to as the god of this world. Um, you know, those who are who are anti-Trinitarian will, you know, sometimes jump on that and say, "Well, you know, here here there's a reference to someone else being God." What would you say to that? To answer that? Well, that's an example of what I'm talking about, which is uh, that the issue here is not the mere use of the word. G-O-D, or in Greek, Theos, Hebrew, El, or Elohim, or Eloah. Um, It's not just the word we're talking about. It's the concept of the God of the universe, the God of all creation, the God who is actually rightly honored as the Lord of all. Now, Paul refers to the devil in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as the god of this age. That is an ironic description of the devil as a being who has uh, arrogantly, uh, presumptuously rebelled against the true god and is being given uh, or accorded power uh, in this age by people who are also rebelling against the true God. But it doesn't mean that he is a genuine, uh, rightful deity. We're not supposed to worship him, obviously. And, I mean, the anti-Trinitarians that bring this up, they know that. They know you're not supposed to worship the devil. Right. And they know that the devil is not the, is in no sense responsible for the existence of the world. He did not make it. He did not help make it. He gets no credit for it. He's not running the universe. Now, he may be running some people's lives because they allow him to, but he's not rightfully in that position. So, if you will, an English uh, idiomatic way of expressing this is that he's a false god, that he's a, a being who shouldn't be regarded as a God, but uh, wrongly is allowed to function as if he were. And so that doesn't help the anti-Trinitarian position one bit once you understand that's what Paul is talking about. And so when we talk about Christ being God, the question has to be asked, is that saying that he's a God like the devil is a God? Can't mean that. It doesn't mean that Christ has wrongfully taken a position that doesn't belong to him. So then what does it mean? See, that, then we have to talk about that. We have to think that through. But the, 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 the objection to biblical monotheism based on a verse like 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is extremely superficial. It's not really getting at substance of what's being said. 
And that's why I emphasize it's not just about the word, the, 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 the term. It's about the word as it's being used in a particular context. I mean, the same author who wrote 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 said, for us, as far as we're concerned, there's only one God. We don't believe in the devil as, as a real God, but he, he's functionally, uh, you know, presumptuously uh, functioning in this age as if he is a God, but he's not really a God. Yeah, it's not like the... the kind of the view that some people have where God, and as you were sharing earlier, kind of the dualism, where God's on one end and Satan's on the other end and they're kind of jockeying for position, um, right. kind of playing puzzle for, for power. Where, when we talk about there being one God, we're saying one supreme, ultimate, eternal, creator, sovereign Lord, you know, over everything. So, right. That's and even, even people within Orthodox Christianity sometimes in a in a tacit way implicitly think or you know believe as if something like dualism is true so they'll say well if anything good happens in my life it's god if anything bad happens in my life it's the devil and so god and the devil are apparently you know pulling and pushing on you and if any you know nothing bad happens to you unless it's the devil uh, or you, you've done something wrong, and uh, mm-hmm. if it's something good happens to you, well then, you know that's God doing it, or you did something right, and and that that isn't a hundred percent wrong, but neither is it a hundred percent right. It leads into a, again this kind of dualistic I- idea that there are these two equally ultimate powers that are fighting for control. That's not biblical. Mm-hmm. As we see in the book of Job, where you know Satan has to come to God for permission to ultimately um, rip, to deal with Job, and so uh, God is, is even in that situation with God being on the throne and being mighty and all powerful, and Satan still having to come for permission because God right. ultimately is, is the sovereign. Well, you notice when Job finally gets to talk to God at the end mm-hmm. of the book. God does not say, listen, Job, I'm really sorry all this happened to you, but you know it's not my fault. <laughs> I, I had no control. It's that renegade Lucifer. I had no control over him. He just yeah. ran off and my did all this <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, God never says, it's not my fault. You know, uh, you know uh-huh. uh, God says to Job, in fact, something that sounds more like the opposite. He says, uh, who are you to to criticize the way I run the universe. Were you there when I set all this up? Or do you know how this all works? Uh, you know, so, so God isn't afraid to claim responsibility for the entirety of creation and existence and history. Yes, bad things happen. He doesn't do the bad things, but they happen in his world, and there is no other God that is, you know, even close to him in power, majesty, uh, or any of those things. And so the good news is, if you're a thoroughgoing monotheist, you only have to worry about one God. Be right with <laughs> yeah, you him. To... Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to pacify. All... See, in polytheism, we talked about dualism, but the ancient uh, world, the most prevalent uh, worldview was polytheism. 
There were all these various gods that were in charge of various parts of the world, various functions in the world, and you always had to be on all of their good side all at the same time. Uh, and wherever you went, you'd want to know, well, who is the god in charge here? I want to offer a sacrifice <laughs> to him, make sure that he's happy with me. Uh, there was a god for the sea and a god for the land and a god for the corn. And, you know, you had to worry about all these different gods. Uh, no, the Bible says there's only one god you need to fear. That's the creator of the universe. He made everything, heaven, earth, under the earth, everything. He's, he's, the, he's the maker of it all. Get right with him and you're set. You know, refuse to come to him and you're in big trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we not a lot of it. Even, you know, I, I minister to a lot of friends who, and people who come out of animi- um, animistic cultures where they are constantly afraid of, of upsetting the God, you know, and there's something that happens. They, they don't know. The problem is they don't know which God they've even offended to have God, you know? Right. So there is great confidence and hope in knowing that there is one God and, and knowing Him intimately exactly. and through His Word. So, amen. Awesome. That's good stuff. <laughs> good, good stuff so far. I wanted to ask you, Rob, as well, um, in terms of there being one God, is there a place in Scripture that says that, that God is one person? Uh, no. Which would cancel no, out the no, There is no biblical text that refers to God as being one person. Okay. Now, we need to be uh, precise here if we can, because the word person uh, has a history. And any word, you know, does. And it doesn't always mean the same thing in, uh, in all places and at all times and in all contexts. So our English word person derives from a Latin word, persona, and the word persona eventually got used in Christian theology as a translation of the Greek word hypostasis, which in the New Testament means substance or essence or being, but in later theology came to be used to mean uh, person. Uh, distinct from the being of God in a very specific Trinitarian understanding. Uh, So the Latin theological formula was that there were three persons, but one substance, one essence. But here's here's where it gets tricky, and I I just threw a bunch of terms at you, but here's where it gets tricky. Uh, The word hypostasis in the King James Version, in, uh, for example, Hebrews 1, is translated person. Uh, and it says uh, that the Son, Christ, is the exact representation of God's hypostasis, or in the King James, his person. Uh, and that sounds like God is one person, and that's the Father, and Jesus, the Son, is someone else, something else. But that, that is a confusion arising from the fact that the word hypostasis went through a theological evolution and doesn't mean the same thing in the 4th century as it does in the 1st century. Now, some people, they hear this, and they immediately get confused because they say, well, shouldn't we be using it in the same way in the 4th century and the 21st century as it's used in the Bible? 
Language doesn't work that way. I'll give you another example. You know what martyrs are, right? Martyrs are people that die for their faith in Christ. That's not what it means in the New Testament. The Greek word martyros means a martyr martyr or martyros means a, a witness, someone who gives testimony. Now, you don't necessarily have to die to be a witness in the New Testament. You know, it just means that you, you're bearing testimony to what you know is the truth. Uh, all the apostles mm-hmm. were witnesses, other people were witnesses. There were hundreds of witnesses to Jesus Christ, uh, who personally saw him, you know. But uh, and every believer, in a sense, is a witness. We're all witnesses to Christ. Uh, but the term martyr, from the Greek used for witness in the New Testament, eventually came to be used with a more specific, narrow, uh, specialized meaning of somebody who died because of their testimony to Christ. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Words change meaning over time. As long as we're clear on what what we're looking at. So in modern English Bibles, in uh, Hebrews 1, instead of saying uh, that Jesus is the exact representation of God's person, it will say something like uh, the exact representation of his nature. Uh, That's the New American Standard Bible. So, again, just understanding, it's not about the words... per se. It's not about the syllables or the spelling or the letters. It's about the meanings that the words are being used to convey that we need to pay attention to. Mm. And now that I have thoroughly confused half the people that were that are listening, no. <laughs> no, I hope that was clear. I hope that was clear because uh, people sometimes look at that verse in Hebrews 1, uh, 3 and they get a little bit tripped up. So that's why I wanted to clarify that. Oh no! There, yeah. I think, yeah. I feel very enlightened <laughs> by that. So, thank you for for sharing that for sure. Um, let me ask you this, because I know sometimes people use um, verses like uh, Genesis one twenty six in terms of uh, the plurality um, when God uses a, um, a plural pronoun for Himself. You know, let us make right. in our image. Um, would you say that that's a good defense of the Trinity? Um, or not. Well, I, I, think, I think it would be a good point to bring up in response to those who claim there's no evidence for the Trinity whatsoever in the Old Testament. In response to that, I would say, well, it's not laid out as clearly as it is in the New Testament, but you do have some indications uh, of a plurality within the unity of the divine being, and I think the Genesis 1.26 uh, text is a good example because there uh, the the speakers who say let us make God in our make man in our image you know God speaking one God saying let us make man in our image and then immediately in verse 27 it is explained that this means that he created man in the image of God and that's important because the text rules out right there the interpretation that this is God and the angels. We are not made in the image of God and the angels. We are made in the image of God, period. And the text has already made it clear this is one God, not a group of gods that are making us. So then when this one God says, let us, well, that sounds like there's some kind of plurality within the 
being of the one God. But I wouldn't construct my doctrine of the Trinity or, or base my argument for the doctrine of the Trinity primarily on a text like that. Okay. Where you're going to find this laid out most clearly is in the New Testament. Okay. The emphasis yeah. in the Old Testament is on the unity of the divine being, on the fact that there's only one God. That was a hard lesson for the Jews to learn. It took them a thousand years. It took them okay. the, the, the uh, destruction of the northern kingdom and the exile of the southern kingdom before they finally got it, that there's only one God. Uh, so I would argue that that's the reason why you don't have something more like a full revelation of the three persons in the Old Testament because the Old Testament writers are fixated, rightly so, by divine inspiration on getting it through the, the minds of the Jews that there is only one creator of the universe, only one God to worship, and you don't worship any other God. And once that idea was clearly understood, accepted, embraced by the Jewish people, the, that, now the ball is rolling and we're ready to bring in the revelation of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Let's this is what theologians call this is what theologians call progressive revelation in the Bible. That God does not dump all of the uh, doctrinal uh, truths on people in Genesis chapter one. He doesn't give us the entirety of uh, biblical theology in a nutshell in one chapter. But there is a historical progressive development in which the truth that God wants people to know is revealed bit by bit. Uh, historically unfolding uh, according to God's purpose throughout the Bible and it, it's not all in one place and it doesn't come all at once right. so we have to get to the end of the story and read the whole thing huh? <laughs> to get the full picture right? <laughs> well we're not, yeah, we're not at the end of the story even now even though the, the Bible is finished but we're not so that's a perfectly legitimate con a point because some people say, well, if, if the Bible is complete, why do you need to use words like Trinity that aren't in the Bible? Mm -hmm. The problem is that nobody who says this restricts himself to using words that are only found in the Bible. I've never met anybody that did it yet. They all right. end up using theological terminology that's not in the Bible, not even translations from the Bible, in order to... Uh, to, to develop their position or to explain their position in terms that people can understand. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we, are, we, we live in a different culture. Uh, we have questions that come up. They need to be answered. People use terms. We need to explain uh, what the truth is in terms that people will grasp, that engage what people are actually saying and what people are actually asking. And that's, what, that's how theology develops. There's nothing wrong with that. So, for example, the Bible never uses the term the canon of Scripture. There's no, the, the term canon is not found in the canon, at least not in that sense. Isn't that funny? Uh, but it is. Nothing, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean the concept of a canon of Scripture is wrong. It just means it's a term that ends up being used to epitomize or encapsulate or summarize the idea uh, of 
a body of scripture that functions as a complete, coherent basis for the covenant people of God. That's what a, that's what a canon is. And the canon is the 66 books of the Bible, and that's that's what we base our faith on. And that concept is a biblical concept. It arises from understanding what the Bible is and how it functions, but it. We use a word that's not found in the Bible to refer to that idea, which is canon. Same thing with the Trinity. The Bible talks about one God. It talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It talks about all these things, but it doesn't use the word T-R-I-N-I-T-Y. It doesn't bother me at all. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, like earlier we were discussing monotheism. Uh, monotheism, you will not find that in Scripture anywhere. That's, that's um, right. Yeah. These um, anti-Trinitarian groups uh, typically are, are, are monotheistic, um, and they adhere to that. You know, they would they would affirm that and agree with monotheism and what it means. Um, yet that word is not an explicit word in scripture. So that's a very good point. But the thought is the thought is obviously expressed in scripture. Is the point right? Right, and uh, I mean, we, we've kind of got a running theme here, but it's an important one, which is not to get uh-huh. so tripped over words that you miss the truth. Uh-huh. The words are Why? vehicles for expressing the truth. You can express truth in different words, and it still works, but you have to be sure uh-huh. that you're understanding the words you're using. Right, absolutely. Let, let's um, break down in terms of the, the three uh, persons within the Godhead. Um, I know we talked about um, all three kind of briefly, um, but the Father, obviously, is not um, disputed much as being, you know, being God, Right. Yeah, with most of the groups that profess to be Christian but reject the Trinity, uh, the idea that the Father is God is not considered controversial. In fact, uh, their usual position is that the Father alone is God and no one else the Son is not God the Holy Spirit is not God um, and they reject uh, the idea of the Father being a distinct person within the Godhead within the divine being uh, but it is noteworthy I think that the mm-hmm. New Testament frequently uses expressions like God the Father God our Father, etc., uh, so that uh, there is a sense you know, already in that usage, which you see in the epistles in particular, Paul's epistles uh, especially, where, uh, yes, the Father is God, but the New Testament writers are already beginning to uh, speak of the Father as God in a way that uh, allows for a recognition that Jesus Christ is also God. And and you see that. They begin to call him God. Uh, Paul calls him God. Peter calls him God in Second Peter. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus God in Hebrews 1.8. Uh, and, of course, the Apostle John calls Jesus God uh, a couple of times. So you've got at least four New Testament writers, four of the major New Testament writers, who explicitly refer to Jesus as God, uh, so that it's no longer regarded as a title that exclusively belongs to the Father. 
So yes, the Father is God, but he is not God to the exclusion of the Son, and by extension, he's not God to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and you have those uh, very um, poignant verses uh, where you see the expression of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, and as they're connecting the two and expressing right. the Roman system in that. Yes, uh, those are important because uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is they establish a point that surprisingly there are some non-Trinitarians who get wrong on the, that get this wrong, and that is these verses establish that the Father is someone distinct from Jesus the Son. Uh, There is an anti-Trinitarian movement known as Oneness Pentecostalism, which maintains that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are not three different persons, but they are three modes or manifestations or roles that the one God plays or has or uses, and Jesus is in some sense that one God. Uh, and so Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And we people need to understand that is not the doctrine of the Trinity. That is a heretical deviation from the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible clearly teaches, and the doctrine of the Trinity clearly teaches, that Jesus is not the Father, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, and he's distinct personally from both the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, eternally uh, been distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right, eternally. And you can see that... Uh, for example, in John 1.1, 1, 1, a famous okay. verse that people often get uh, uh, tied up in, but uh, it clearly distinguishes Jesus, who is there called the Word or the Logos, from the Father, who is there called God, the God, Theos, Tantheon, in Greek. Jesus and the Father are distinct personally, even before creation, in the very beginning, John says, in the beginning, the Word was with God. So he's distinct from that person called God there in that verse. Wow. Uh, and the uh, one of Pentecostals uh, have trouble with that part because, in their view, Jesus uh, is God the Father, come in the flesh, and that's it. There's there's no other divine person but the Father. But John clearly teaches that the Logos is the Son who came from the Father, is distinct from him, comes from the Father's side, comes into this world to honor the Father and reconcile us to the Father and glorify the Father. Then the Son goes back to heaven, to back to be with God the Father, And the Father and the Son send someone else, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete. And he comes into the world to indwell believers and to complete the work that Christ accomplished on the cross and to glorify the Son. And so you have a a, a narrative, if you will, in the Gospel of John involving three persons, the Father who sent the Son, the Son who came from the Father and then went back to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit who came from the Father and the Son. And the oneness Pentecostals do not get that. 
they collapse all three persons into one divine person playing three different roles, wearing three different hats, if you will, and that's not biblical. And yeah, it's not the not. doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that is not what we teach. That's kind of some of, uh, when, when you read the topic, you kind of get that uh, as a straw man definition, and that's not what we're saying at all. And um, I'm well, That's right. That's why, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses commonly ask questions like, if Jesus is God, who is he praying to in the garden? Uh-huh. <laughs> as if, as if, if he's God, uh, that means that he's praying to himself. Now that's right. a really great question to ask a oneness Pentecostal, because <laughs> it, it does press a problem with the oneness Pentecostal view. If Jesus is the Father, let's rephrase the question. If Jesus uh-huh. is the Father, who is he praying to in the garden? That's a good question. But yeah, we use the Jehovah's Witnesses argument. Jesus is the Father. They believe he's the Son, and the Son is praying to the Father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been using the the, the Jehovah Witnesses argument with the one that's going to pop up It's interesting. Devin had actually he was asked to preach a few weeks ago at church. Um, this this uh, sub sub for our pastor, and he preached on John seventeen the high priestly prayer. And he really broke that apart um, in terms of just this whole eternal uh, thing before the foundations of the earth, the Father and the Son and this communion and this, this plan and this um, where he reveals and he, as Jesus is praying, you kind of see this, we get this background <laughs> and says what was going on in you know, eternity um, past. Um, yeah. Uh, these, there was this relationship going on and that this didn't all just happen by happenstance, and that they are distinct from each other. Right, right. That's very clear in John 17, 5, where Jesus, in prayer to the Father, says, uh, uh, speaks of the glory that I had alongside you before the world was. Uh, mm-hmm. So before the world even existed, the Son, Jesus Christ, existed alongside the Father with glory. He wasn't the Father, but he was with the Father alongside him in divine glory. So he's not a lesser being, but he is one God with the Father distinct from him from eternity. It's it's right there in John seventeen five. <laughs> yeah, and again as you know, as we were studying that and as we teach that I just really came alive to me even more, you know, that, wow, <laughs> you know, thank you, God, for letting us, you know, for, for sharing, you know, this dialogue, you know, between, between the two, the Father and the Son with us, so that we can, you know, get this glimpse into just that awesome relationship that they have. Yes, really yes, that's right, that's right. Amen. It's very so, special to hear that, yeah. Yeah, so we're we're getting into the deity of Jesus, which is obviously important for this time of year. You know, Christians we celebrate um, Jesus uh, becoming man and coming to Earth and uh, to ultimately take our God for us in the cross. So if Jesus isn't God, there's really nothing to celebrate this time of year. Um, it was just a you know a, a, he was just born in a stable and nothing nothing of significance. But obviously um, there is something there which causes people to be in awe and, and wonder and to 
to celebrate. And so it's a great time to speak dialogue about the beauty of Christ this time of year, especially. Um, what would you say in terms of uh, explicit statements from Scripture about Jesus being God? And then I know there's some implicit ones we'll get to, but just um, some very explicit places that you would say that we can see in Scripture to point people to. Well, I think that it's important for people to understand that the way the New Testament reveals the deity of Christ uh, is not limited to, and in fact goes far beyond using the title God for Jesus. It does do that. And we've mentioned some of those texts. John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Uh, second uh, Peter 1.1 1, 1, uh, where Peter calls Jesus Christ our God and Savior Jesus Christ uh, Titus 2.13 a very similar verse where uh, 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 Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior Jesus Christ uh, Hebrews 1.8 which quotes Psalm 45.6 and applies it to Jesus your throne O God is forever and ever uh, so there's a number of these texts that we can look at that actually refer to Jesus as God, but I would say they represent less than 1% of the biblical evidence pertaining to the deity of Christ, and maybe not even the most important texts. Uh, another group of texts, and there's many more of these, are texts that refer to Jesus uh, with the Greek word for Lord, a kurios, in contexts where it is clear that what the author is doing is identifying Jesus as the Lord Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now, okay. just to help people understand the, how this works, uh, in Jesus' day, in the first century, Jews were already in their uh, religious speech uh, when they would uh, come to a place in the Hebrew Scriptures that used the divine name Yahweh, which we in English commonly translate Jeho or, or spell Jehovah, when they would come to the name Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures, or when they would refer to a scripture that had that name, they would commonly say, Lord, Adonai in Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, or uh, Kurios in Greek, uh, and Dominus in, in Latin, uh, but especially in Greek, of course, kurios, they would use that because that was the most common language throughout the Mediterranean world at the time. So when a New Testament writer refers to Jesus as Lord, and it's in a context where there is a clear reference back to an Old Testament text that speaks about Yahweh, about Jehovah as the Lord, uh, then you have uh, a situation where the biblical writer, the New Testament writer, is speaking about Jesus as Yahweh. Now, that's actually more explicit than calling him God in biblical thought, in biblical Why? language. That's, that's, that's definite. That's, that's the, the being of the creator God that is worshipped by Israel by the Jews is Yahweh the Lord Adonai Kyrios <laughs> uh, that's it that's that's him so when uh, for example 
a really good example of this is Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, where yeah, Paul says, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, where Paul says that after the Son, Jesus Christ, had humbled himself uh, by becoming a human being and dying on the cross for our sins, that God, the Father, of course, God highly exalted him. Super exalted is the <laughs> Greek word here. Uh, and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, if you ask a Jehovah's Witness on the street, before you look at this text, what is the name that is above every name? What is the greatest name in the universe? They'll say Jehovah. And they're right. So, all right, so the greatest name in the universe, the, the name that is above every name is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, God, right? And so uh, Paul says uh, that God the Father bestowed on him, gave him the name Jehovah. And we know that because he goes on, it says that at his in, in, at his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord, kurios, the Greek word for God, uh, for, for Jehovah in the New Testament, to the glory of God the Father. Now here's something very interesting. It does not detract from the glory of the Father to honor Jesus as Jehovah, as the Lord Yahweh. It doesn't detract from his glory at all. He doesn't mind. <laughs> He's not offended. He wants Why? people to honor Jesus as the Lord God. Why? He gave uh, him as that he name is. Name. That's who he is. Uh, so when it says that he gave him that name, some Jehovah's Witnesses and other anti-Trinitarians think, oh, well, if he gave him that name, he must not have already had it. No, this is a biblical way of speak, an idiomatic way of saying that he publicly... Uh, uh, announced to the world that's who he is uh, you know so it's a way of saying uh, this person that you just thought of as uh, as uh, that guy Jesus of Nazareth uh, down the street you know that was kind of a strange uh, teacher that he's actually the Lord God uh, by the way I think this is we read the New Testament so differently 2,000 years later because we're not part of that same culture. You may not know this, but the name Jesus was a very popular name in first century Judaism. One out of every seven guys that you would meet in Galilee or Judea, his name was Jesus. One out of seven. It was a very popular name. Uh, we know this, by the way, because uh, archaeologists have found hundreds of uh, tombs uh, in Galilee and uh, Jer mostly Jerusalem area but uh, elsewhere as well uh, and they have names of the of the deceased uh, on the uh, bone boxes or ossuaries that are in these in these rock tombs and they can count how many name, times a person's name comes up it uh, turns out one out of every four girls in, in first century Jew Jewish culture was named Mary that's why there's so many Marys in the New Testament and one out of every seven guys was named Jesus. So now, to us, at least in, in Anglo culture, the name Jesus is, you know, extremely rare and reserved only for the Lord, not in Hispanic culture. But in first century culture, that was a very common name. But now it's become the name of the Savior of the world, who is our Lord and God come in the flesh for our salvation. That's 
That's why it's special. But in, in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, the name that he has that's above every name is the name Lord, which in this context represents the name Yahweh. In fact, Paul is there alluding in, in Philippians 2.10 to Isaiah 45.23, where Isaiah says that it is in the name of, of Yahweh, Jehovah, that all people will bow the knee and, and confess and, and find salvation. It's in, it's in Jehovah, the Lord, God. Paul uses that verse and applies it to Jesus Christ. And this happens dozens of times throughout the New Testament. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. Yeah, that's powerful. Now, uh, my my friend uh, Ed, if I'm sorry, my friend Ed Komashevsky and I did a book called Putting Jesus in His Place, where we talked about five different ways that the New Testament reveals Jesus to be God. So if I could take a a minute and run through these five very quickly, people get the big picture. Uh, the first yeah. is uh, the first is that Jesus receives the honors that are due to God alone. The honors, uh, so that's uh, worship, prayer, reverence, uh, praise, uh, all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is that Jesus has the attributes of God alone. So He's all powerful. He's eternal, uncreated. Uh, omniscient or all-knowing omnipresent which is a fancy way of saying that he's he is everywhere at once he can do anything at any place at any time Uh, these are the these are attributes of deity and Jesus has those attributes so honors attributes the third one is that Jesus has the names of God he's God he's Lord as we've talked about both of those he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, all those titles found in Revelation. Uh, he's the Savior uh, in, a, in a religious, you know, spiritual, theological sense. Uh, he's the Redeemer. He's, he's all these things. Uh, and, and these are all various ways that the Bible refers to God, and Jesus has these titles. So he has the names of God. The fourth way that the New Testament shows Jesus to be God is that Jesus does the deeds of God, the deeds. He, he does what God does. So Jesus creates the world. He sustains the world. I don't know if people are aware of that even, uh, but Hebrews 1, for example, says that the Son, Jesus Christ, upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ keeps the universe running. That is an astonishing idea that someone who is, you know, from our perspective, a man, actually runs the universe. You know that old song that uh, people still sing sometimes, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands? Well, Mm -hmm. there you go. Jesus has the whole world in his hands. He's running the entire universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus does the works of creation, providence, sustaining the universe. Uh, He is the judge. He is the redeemer. Uh, He forgives sins. Jesus 
forgave a man's sins that he'd never laid eyes on before, physical eyes. He'd never seen him before. He, he, he wasn't a relative. He wasn't a friend. He wasn't an enemy. He was just a guy. They brought him to Jesus. Jesus said, my sons, your sins are, are forgiven. And the scribes were sitting there clucking to themselves, well, who do you think, who does he, think he is? <laughs> Only God could do that. And the reason why that is so is because, you know, if, if you wrong me, I can forgive you for that. But if you wrong other people, that's not my business. I can't forgive you for something you do to your husband or your neighbor or whatever. That's not my job. I don't have that prerogative of forgiving you of sins that you didn't commit against me, but you committed against God or other people. Jesus forgave all of the sins that man had ever committed. And, and that, that's an astonishing thing for him to do. So he forgives sins. Here's one many people do not know and don't think about. But it's a function of deity. It's a work of deity. And that is that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit after he went to heaven. Now, if the Holy Spirit is, the, as many anti-Trinitarians maintain, is the power of God or something like that, how does Jesus get off sending the Holy Spirit? I mean, wouldn't that be God's job? <laughs> uh, you know, if Jesus isn't God. You know, how does, how does Jesus send the Holy Spirit? But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit according to the Gospel of John, according to Acts chapter 2. Uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus, at the end of history, will judge all people. He will judge the world. Uh, I think a lot of anti-Trinitarians are in for a shock. Uh, on Judgment Day, they're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, and I sort of uh, have this... Uh, Really, I don't mean for it to be funny exactly, but it's ironic kind of image of, or, or picture of people standing before Jesus and saying, uh, "Excuse me, can I talk to your dad? What are you, doing here? you know, yeah. you know uh, can I can I speak to somebody higher up? Can I can I appeal this uh, to a higher higher court? You know, uh, I mean, you're just you're just God's agent, right? Is it possible you're making a mistake here? <laughs> that, that's not going to happen." Because Jesus is God, he sits on the throne of God, and this is the fifth point, that Jesus is seated in the very seat of God's throne. He, if I could put it this way, he sits in the big chair. And uh, so if you think about these five, and he sits there forever, he, is for, he will rule forever from the throne of God. So now, those five points, real quickly, I said it was going to be a minute, but it was five, um, are uh, honors. Uh, honors, attributes, names, deeds, and seat. And if you think of the first letter of each of those five words, it spells out the English word hands, H-A-N-D-S. So this is a tool that my friend Ed came up with to help people remember the New Testament evidence for the deity of Christ, that Jesus receives the honors of God, he has the attributes of God, he has the names of God, he does the deeds of God, and he sits in the seat of God's throne. And when we see that big picture, it really helps us to understand that referring to Jesus as God is not just a matter of, of nomenclature, not just a matter of labeling, but it's an understanding of who and what he really is in our lives, that he is the one who, who rules our lives, who judges us at the end of history, who forgives us, who empowers us by the, sen by the sending of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's the one that we are to worship and honor and adore and pray to. And he can only do all those things if he really is God. 
Uh, I have some anti-Trinitarian friends who are Unitarian, and the Unitarians say, well, Jesus was a man born of a virgin, but he was just a man, and after he lived a sinless life, which I'm not sure how he does that if he's just a man, uh, but he lives a sinless life, he died, rose from the dead, was ascended into heaven, and is now exalted, and is kind of an honorary God. And so the Father says, because you were such a great guy, such a perfect human being, I am now giving you kind of second place in my universe, and you, you get to kind of rule with me as my, my, honor, my honorary son. And now that sounds nice, but it doesn't work biblically, because then Jesus turns around and tell, uh, the Father turns around and tells Jesus, uh, I want you to answer prayers. Right. And Jesus is a guy, right, on this theology. Yeah. He's just a man. He's a great man. He's a sinless man, but he's just a man. How's he supposed right. to listen to perhaps a million prayers all at once, know what's yeah. in everyone's heart, and answer their prayers appropriately according to, you know, if he's not God, according to God's sovereign will? How's he supposed to do all that if he's just an exalted man? See, this is not right. a theology that really measures up to the richness of what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that, you know, as you were talking about, uh, referring to that, in terms of the exalted man, even within um, like Mormonism, for instance, this kind of exaltation to Godhood, um, those points that you just brought up really demonstrate that that just can't be. <laughs> you know, you have to have the plain, sovereign God. Many people are familiar with the uh, film Bruce Almighty. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a really humorous scene in that film where Bruce is put in charge of answering prayer. And uh, he struggles with it because there's just too many people praying all at once. And he's got a room full of file cabinets of prayers and he can't, you know, uh, they get all messed up all over the floor. And he tries post-it notes and that that doesn't work. And he finally comes up with the computer database and he's sort of answering prayers by automation. He doesn't have a clue what's going on in anyone's heart. And after he thinks he's answered all the prayers, three three million more prayers come in right away. And he's just completely frustrated. Well, it's a very funny scene. But what it illustrates is a man just... And of course, Bruce isn't a perfect man, so uh, we'll give, give them that. But even a perfect man is not going to be able to handle that Jesus is far more than a man. He is a man, and he is a perfect man. But Jesus is God and man. He's God incarnate, and because he is the divine, eternal Son incarnate, he is able to do all that the Bible says that he does for us. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, I think whenever, you know, I really came to a biblical understanding of being creator and sustaining the universe as you were hearing earlier and just upholding everything by the word of his power was just, I was in awe because I, I think even in my own life um, I had not held Jesus to his proper position and so just reading those texts not just you know, necessarily just to, to argue for the doctrine of Trinity but just to understand those texts and to really make them alive and apply them in our lives um, it really just makes you worship worship our Lord, which is something that he encouraged, um, was the worship of Christ, which again is another right. is another beautiful 
um, proof that he is in fact God, the one worthy of worship. All the, all the angels of God worship the Son. And uh, Hebrews 1.6. And Revelation 5.14 pictures all of the angels, all of redeemed humanity gathered around the throne of God and worshiping God and the Lamb, worshiping the Father and the Son. Uh, Jesus is, if there's one place you should not be receiving worship if you're just a man, it's uh, in the throne room of God. You know, if you or I were in the throne room of God, uh, we would try to step aside and take a very humble position somewhere, and be inconspicuous as possible, and direct all worship to God the Father, to, to the creator of the universe. If we, were, if we were one of his creatures, even the greatest of his creatures, we would be as nothing compared to him. But Jesus, in the very throne room of God, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels and resurrected, glorified people, receives worship from all of them. That, that can't be if he's even the greatest creature that doesn't work, that doesn't make sense. He would not accept it. He would not accept it if, he was, if that's all he was. Yeah, Paul, um, I think it was Paul and, was it Paul and Barnabas, when they were being adopted and, and worshipped, they were huge. They, you know, they said, we're mere men. They were huge that right. from other humans. And they said, you That's know, right. worship That's only God. chapter 14. Yep. Right. That's right. We don't see that with Jesus at all. He, he welcomed the worship, and he told people to worship him. You know, so we're two, two totally different scenarios here, dealing with God and man, obviously. Right. That's great. Good stuff. I'm, I'm learning so much. Um, uh, and it, going back to the book um, that uh, you and Ed did together, you and Ed, I can't pronounce Ed's last name. It's Tomaszewski. Uh, oh. Tomaszewski. Okay, there we go. Tomaszewski, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I definitely am familiar with him and his work as well. And I'm going to put this book, a uh, link to the, where people can order the book, um, in our chat room and on our Facebook page as well, because I definitely want to get this as well. Absolutely. Great resource. Um, so in, in regards to um, uh, the names or these titles that we see in the Bible for Jesus, um, what is so to think about these titles in terms of him being God? I'm sorry, so I, I missed the question. Class, um, the titles that, that are, are attributed to Jesus, um, things yeah. like the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega, King of Kings, you know, these sort of titles, what, um, what is that the significance of those being applied to Jesus in this context? Well, uh, the three titles, beginning and end, first and last, Alpha and Omega, they all mean the same thing. Uh, uh, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's another way of saying the first and the last so is beginning and end. They're all just synonymous uh, expressions. They all go back to the book of Isaiah, where Yahweh, Jehovah, says, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is none else beside me. Okay. So the book of Revelation picks up that language of the first and the last, and it applies it to Jesus Christ. 
and and it applies it in in all three of those ways. Uh, so you could not ask for a more uh, dramatic, colorful, uh, graphic way of speaking about Jesus as God. Uh, you know, it's it's like the Bible was, and we use this in our book. It's like the Bible is saying Jesus is the one. Jesus is. He is the A to Z. He's everything, you know. Uh, and and that doesn't that's that's not going to make sense if he's a subordinate, inferior creature who is a servant of the real God. Uh, but that that's how the Bible speaks about Jesus. He's he's the one. He's he's A to Z. He's got the name that's above every name. Uh, he's. He's the greatest there is. The Bible cannot find language that is too exalted for Christ, that's too honorary. Uh, it does not shy away. There, There is nothing that you can say about God that the Bible does not say about Jesus Christ. Um, he deserves all honor, praise, glory, worship. Uh, he, he's the one. So... Then, then the of course the expression the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a kind of uh, ancient idiomatic way of saying he's the number one ruler of all, and and that's a that's a major theme throughout the New Testament that Jesus is now the top ruler over everyone and everything. Jesus said in Matthew twenty eight eighteen. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now, again, non-Trinitarians get a little tripped up here. They say, well, how can he be given authority if he's already God? And the answer is, he already was God, but he humbled himself by becoming a human being. He voluntarily, as it were, took off the robes of his majestic divine glory came into this world as one of us, humbled himself, allowed himself to be killed in the most shameful way, looking to the Father to raise him from the dead and glorify and exalt him. So once he's gone through that process, he is, he is receiving that glory, that kingdom, that authority from the Father because he voluntarily surrendered his divine prerogatives in order to glorify the Father and, and to save us. So, but, but that's where he is now. He is the one who has all authority everywhere. Uh, and so he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, he is exalted above every name that can be named, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So Paul is leaving no loopholes there. Uh, he's not saying, well, Jesus is number one right now, but he'll go back to being number two or number 20 sometime down the No, no, no. Jesus is number one in this age and in the age to come, forever. And uh, so those titles are simply another way of expressing that point. And by the way, this is very important, what I just said. Uh, it, it, as, as contrasting with Islam. Islam says Jesus was a great prophet. He was the greatest prophet of his day. But he's not the greatest prophet even of all time. Muhammad is the greatest prophet. 
And Muhammad's revelation now supersedes that of the Bible, and Muhammad is the model and the, the exemplar for Islam, not Jesus. But the Christians maintain that you can't go anywhere but down once you have Jesus. That Jesus Why? is far exalted above every name that can be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Because he's not just a prophet. He's the divine son of God who came to redeem us from sin. Muhammad didn't even make that claim. And it, Muslims don't make that claim about Muhammad. He just doesn't measure up in that way. Uh, you, you can say this without showing any disrespect for Muhammad. You can say, look, Muhammad was, in many respects, an admirable person. He was a strong leader. He was a monotheist. Uh, he opposed right. idolatry. He, he, yeah. he wanted people to support the widow and the orphan. All good things. But Muhammad was not anything close to what Jesus was and what Jesus yeah. is. And I think we can say that to a Muslim without showing any disrespect for Muhammad. Just saying, look, say everything you want to say about Muhammad, but... He doesn't do for us what Jesus does for us. Yeah, that's um, that's a great great thing. I mean, as we're as we're dialoguing on this topic, you can um, it, it equips you to be able to dialogue with people from different groups, including like you said, Islam, um, as we're arguing for the deity of Jesus Christ. So um, that's why this conversation is so valuable and needed. And um, I, pre- I I like the approach, you know, not going in and offending uh, Muhammad because obviously they revere him, but um, pointing to Christ and showing how he is, you know, Lord, Savior, Alpha and Omega, Eternal God, all these sort of things. So that's a durable process, actually, um, that I plan to use as well, not just with some of my friends. Um, in terms of, because um, we talked about those titles being applied to Jesus and um, these these acts of that only God can do that Jesus did and things that were attributed to God that were attributed to Jesus. What about what Jesus said about himself? Um, the the I am claim um, that we see throughout the scripture. Can you maybe explain why those are significant and what what that um, has to do with this discussion? Yes. Well that's a very that's a very important issue and I think people need to understand uh, something about the way Jesus operated when he was on the earth as a mortal human being. Uh, his intention, purpose, focus, mission was to glorify the Father, not to glorify himself. It was to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us to the Father and glorify the Father. So Jesus, in a sense, uh, didn't toot his own horn. Uh, he didn't come around saying, I am God, get on your knees and worship me now. You know, he didn't do that. <laughs> uh, because... His purpose was to come in humility in order to reconcile us to God. But now here's the interesting thing. As humble as Jesus was in not doing that, Jesus made claims that strike us, if we're understanding them in their cultural context, as radical and astonishing claims. So uh, Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, uh, or to go outside the Gospel of John, uh, no one knows the Father except the Son. 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You can't know the Father. You can't know God unless I reveal Him to you. Uh, Moses never talked that way. David never talked that way. Uh, this is an absolutely unprecedented kind of speech. In, in Jewish liturgy, in Jewish prayer and, and Jewish uh, corporate worship, they would end a prayer by saying amen very often. You see that in Deuteronomy and some other places. Jesus often began his statements with the word amen. And no one else That's ever did that. And yeah, it, it's, right. it's very surprising. Jesus will say to somebody, amen, I say to you. We kind of lose that most English translations translate it, truly I say to you isn't wrong as much as it is kind of uh, weak compared to what Jesus is doing. He's saying, so certain am I that what I am telling you is the truth, that I can start with amen instead of ending with it. <laughs> uh, he's the only person in the Bible that ever talks that way. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that the people were astonished at his teaching because he spoke as one having authority and not like the scribes. Jesus didn't say, well, Rabbi John says this and Rabbi Bill says that, but here's my opinion. Instead, what Jesus says is, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and then he would tell them what it was that they needed to do. He was speaking as if he was the authority, not something external to himself. Now, once you understand this is, this is pervasive throughout the Gospels. It, everywhere you look, Jesus talks this way. There is no, there is no uh, quiet, unassuming country preacher Jesus going around saying, uh, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but in the meantime, let's just try to love each other and, you know, get along. No, no, Jesus is, extreme, Jesus is extremely confident about who he is and what he is there to do, and it's, he's making unprecedented claims, even by the way he talks. And one of the things that he does, as you mentioned, is he has these statements, and most of them are in John, but there's a couple in the other Gospels where Jesus uses the words, I am, in a very surprising way. Now, of course, anybody can say, I am, in, in some context. But what Jesus does is he says, I am, in ways that echo the speech of God in the Old Testament. So, for example, uh, perhaps most famously, Jesus uh, said to uh, the Jews who were saying, uh, you know, how can you compare, say, Abraham saw you when you're not even 50 years old? Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham came into being, I am. Wow. Now, see, uh, you and I couldn't say that. Uh, no. <laughs> even, even, even Gabriel wouldn't say something like that. Jesus is talking wow. as if he's God here. And we know that that's how he, people in his own culture understood Jesus, because the next verse, John 8:59, tells us that they picked up stones to stone him. Obviously, yep. for blasphemy. <laughs> Uh, so Jesus used this I am expression several times in ways that reveals his uh, divine identity. Uh, another example, which many people miss because it's usually translated 
it is I or it's just me. <laughs> In John 6, yeah. Jesus is walking on the, on the sea during the storm in the middle of the night or something and the disciples see him uh, walking on the sea and they, they're scared they, they think it's a ghost and Jesus says I am and then he gets in the boat and you know uh, you could translate it you know it is I or it's, it's me but I mean the whole the whole setting of Jesus master being the master over the elements, walking on the sea. Uh, wow. You know, uh, this is this is a divine being who's approaching them, and he's wow. using the language of God that you find in Isaiah, especially. Uh, and I quoted one of those where where he earlier where he God says, "I am the first, and I am the last, and before me, besides me, there is no God." You know that kind of statement is is uh, you know I am He and there is no other. That's another one in Isaiah, and Jesus talks that way in the Gospel. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, to hear as Westerners, 21st century um, folks reading the scriptures in the New Testament, and people can say Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, when we see the reactions like you brought up. Uh, in John, um, John 8 and that, where when he made these, these, he made these claims, you know, I am he, before Abraham was, I am, and they pick up stones and stone him. So they know exactly what he was saying, what he was communicating, but we want to, of course, um, uh, uh, interpret it in terms of our, our Western culture experience. He wasn't saying anything, you know, he was just making a, a, a statement, but no, he was making a very direct statement about his divinity, his own divinity, and this is what anger did you use. Yeah, well, the, perhaps the most famous one is the, the, the statement in John 10:30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Mm. And we, you know, I've, I've read a lot of commentary and opinion about that verse, and many people mm-hmm. seem to have the idea that all Jesus is saying is, the Father and I are, you know, we're tight. You know, we get along. I, yeah, I do close. everything He wants me to do. We're, we're, yeah. we're, com- we're, we're simpatico, you know. No, no. Yeah. Again, this is a Jewish cultural context. And Jesus is speaking uh, in a religious setting, and He's using the word one in a way that in the Jewish ears, in the first century Jewish context, is going to reverberate with the most famous confession of Judaism, which is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And here Jesus is talking about him having the same power as the Father to keep his sheep. It's his sheep, not not just some other ones, you know, his sheep, and he preserves them, and no one can snatch them out of his hand, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father, we are one. And again, the Jews want to stone him. And they say they want to stone him because he is a man who is making himself out to be God. Now, why did they think that? Because his statement is a deliberate play off the Jewish creedal confession of the Shema, 
The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Jesus is saying, the Father and I are one. In that context, that can only be a claim to deity, and that's how his hearers understood him. Um, very powerful statements about himself that he made. And again, it's kind of, you know, when you think about the, the C.S. Lewis quote, you know, did you reward liar lunatic? Um, it kind of falls into that camp. You know, he's making these profound statements about him being God. <laughs> um, in this culture right. where obviously people took blasphemy very serious, the Jewish people did, um, to make those types of claims and, and for it not to be true, um, or just, that would be very uh, nonsense for him to do so. <laughs> well, what, what validates Jesus' claims ultimately is his resurrection. Uh-huh. It proves to the world that when Jesus said these things, he wasn't some kind of megalomaniac who thought he was God, you know, some kind of crazy person or some kind uh-huh. of blasphemer. But it vindicates him as the divine Son of God who was one with the Father and who had come from the Father's side into the world to save us and reconcile us to the Father. So the resurrection is key here because it shows Jesus to be who he really is. It's not as the Unitarians want to claim that in the resurrection Jesus now gets to become something he wasn't, but rather it vindicates him in his claims to be that divine son of God. And that, that's, that's why it's very important for people to understand the resurrection and why we know it's true and how it shows that the Christian faith is founded on fact. Absolutely. And I love that, you know, throughout the book of John, even when you, you see those instances where Jesus predicts his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. Um, and he, you know, he says, I lay my life down, you know, but I'll raise it up. You know, I'll, he has the power to, to raise himself from the dead, and he did. Yeah. Um, again, pointing more and more to the fact that, of who he was. And I think that the apostles, when they got it, you know, when he came back and they got it, you know, it clicked for them. Like, wow, <laughs> he really said yeah. he was going to do this. He did this. He's God, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, what we about some of the talk about we should probably talk about the Holy Spirit. We should. Yeah, we got twenty more minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> this has been so good so far. Um I could talk about this stuff all night. Um yeah, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Um how yeah, how does he fit to this the thoughts in the Trinity? Well, I mentioned earlier that you get this kind of narrative uh in the Gospel of John especially where the Father, who's person number one, sends the Son, Jesus Christ, who's person number two. He sends him into the world. The Son comes on behalf of the Father to glorify the Father, to reconcile us to the Father, to reveal the Father to us. And Jesus does that in his teaching and his miracles and in his death and resurrection. All of those things reveal the Father and his heart of love for the, his people to bring them back to himself and so forth. And Jesus is exalted, and he, before he dies, he tells the disciples, the apostles, after I'm gone, I'm going to send another 
parakletos is the Greek word. This is one of those words that we can't seem to find a one-word English equivalent that covers all of the nuances. It's been translated comforter, helper, uh, uh, advocate. Advocate may be the closest to the, the original meaning. And uh, so, but he says, I'm going to send another, I, I, I like the English uh, uh, anglicized word, paraclete, whatever that means. So somebody who is your supporter, defender, you know, uh, is going to empower you and, and, and stand with you. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send another paraclete who will be with you forever and in you. And he will teach you, and he will remind you, and he will he will bear witness to me, and he will bear witness to me along with you, and he will convict the world of sin. He'll do all these things. So then Jesus dies and rises from the dead and goes back to heaven, and he sends the Holy Spirit, who is this comforter, who is this paraclete. And the Holy Spirit is therefore another divine person. It's person number three. And he's like Jesus in many ways. He comes from the Father. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. Jesus says in John 16:13, just like Jesus didn't speak on his own initiative, but he spoke what the Father sent him to say, the Holy Spirit speaks what Jesus sent him to say. Uh, there are a number of these parallels. I can't go through them all, but there's like 20 of them between Jesus uh-huh. and the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John alone. So much so that uh, Roman Catholic uh, biblical scholar Raymond Brown described the Holy Spirit in John as another Jesus. He's not Jesus, of course, but he's another person that's just like Jesus in so many ways. Now, there is a way in which he's obviously very different. He doesn't come in the flesh. Instead, he comes in an invisible spirit mode of indwelling people's hearts and transforming them from the inside out. That's a that's a, a completion of the work that Christ came to start in us. But the Holy Spirit makes it effective by doing this inner, hidden work in the hearts of people that he indwells. So we have three persons in that narrative. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is, as I've said, he's someone that Jesus sends in his place. He's not a force. He's not an impersonal power. He's not like electricity. Uh, he's, he's someone, but he comes in this invisible, hidden, spiritual way that we can't see or touch. Now, he produces effects sometimes. People speak in tongues in the book of Acts or miracles happen. Uh, But generally speaking, you can't see anything that's going on directly as a result of his coming. It's an inner work. But he's still someone. And so uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he will teach you everything that you need to pass on to everybody else. The apostles need to teach. He will teach you those things. He will... He will remind you. He will speak. Uh, he will guide you into all the truth. Uh, by the way, I'm getting kind of a feedback echo here. So Are you a little? Like, yeah. So if um, I you don't, you're not hearing that way. 
Yeah, you sound fine. You're not coming through that way. Okay, good. Uh, okay. So the Holy Spirit is this third person who comes in a different way than Jesus came. But he does a lot of the same things that Jesus does. He, he, right. he is very much like Jesus. Um, historically, we see this played out in the book of Acts. What Jesus promises in John, the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts. So the Holy Spirit comes, he empowers people for witness, he he bears testimony to the to the uh, redeeming work of Christ in people's lives through miracles and you know manifestations and so forth. Uh, he, he he calls people to ministry. There's a fascinating passage in the book of Acts, chapter 13, where Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit actually spoke in the first person, uh, saying, uh, set apart for me, this is the Holy Spirit speaking, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's Acts 13, verse 2. So Holy Spirit talks. Uh, Now, how does he talk? I don't know exactly. It doesn't go into detail. But the point is that the Holy Spirit is speaking here in the first person. Uh, In Acts 15, when the Jerusalem Council reaches its decision as to uh, the, the, the issue of whether Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to become part of the church, and they decide, no, they don't need to do that, uh, the, the, uh, the apostles and elders write a letter to the Christians uh, in the nearby Gentile-dominated areas, and they write a letter in which they say, having thought about this, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, and then they give them things that they want them to observe. So the Holy Spirit and we have decided (laughs) this is what needs to be done. So the Holy Spirit is a participant in the events of the book of Acts. He is a person who is engaged in these events as the divine guide guide the divine teacher, the divine leader of the early Christian movement. <coughs> Excuse me. I was blown away by a, a verse in Acts recently that I was reading. In Acts 16, um, when Paul, Paul and Saul were going around and they were preaching um, throughout Galatia and those areas, and um, it, it says in the verse that they were prevented from by the Holy Spirit from preaching. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching, even like the ESV right. says. Acts 16, 6, and that just blew me away. Um, yeah. I mean, I've read that before, but it, it just really came alive to me about the power of the Holy Spirit. And it, you know, not in terms of just this impersonal force, but, you know, he actually, like you said, was very involved in the ministry and the Word of God going forth and spreading of the gospel. Well, that's right. And it's... It, very practical to understand this in the book of Acts because and we're seeing this unfortunately in a widespread way today but many people treat the Holy Spirit as something that they can use Mm. something that's under their control uh, something that they can manipulate and you can't because the Holy Spirit is God he's a divine person he decides which miracles will happen, where they will happen, who will be involved. He dispenses the gifts as he chooses, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 12:11. It's up to the Holy Spirit what spiritual gift you get. You can't 
right. you know, snap your fingers and you get the Holy Spirit. You can't long enough for it, yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting a spiritual gift, but it's not up to you. It's not up to me. Uh, miracles, God does miracles, but he doesn't do miracles at our beck and call. Uh, and even people that recognize the Holy Spirit as a person often treat the Holy Spirit as something they can control. So I, I kind of get a little bit amused when people uh, say, uh, you know, come to our church Thursday night at 7 o'clock. The Holy Spirit's going to be there and people are going to get healed. And I think, well, right. you know, what you, so you booked the Holy Spirit. To, to <laughs> <You> <laughs> he's going to come and do miracles for you. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. You know, you, you can't right. book the Holy Ghost to come and, and do miracles when you want him to. Uh, right. He does he does things. He does miraculous things uh, when he wants to, the way he wants to, with whom he wants to, and he okay. he does that because he's a person. If people would just get their heads around the idea that the Holy Spirit is someone and that he's God. You can't manipulate him. You can't control him. Uh, he's sovereign. He's sovereign over the miracles. He's sovereign over the gifts. We could get our hands on that concept and really grasp it, really understand it, appreciate it. Then we would, we would have a greater respect for the Holy Spirit. We would, we would have a greater appreciation for what he does. And we'd, out, we'd have greater respect for his lordship. Because the Holy Spirit is also Lord. Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen. He is Lord. He is divine. He's God. We are His creatures. We are we are the vessels that He's going to work through. And we need to put ourselves in our place. Part of putting Jesus in His place is the title of our book. Is putting ourselves in our place. We are not like Jesus. We're not God. We're not the sovereign. We're not running things, and the Holy Spirit is God in us, dwelling within us to make us to be the creatures that God created us to be, uh, but we can't control that. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not like electricity. We get charged up and we go do what we want to do. That's not how it works. Because the Holy Spirit's not in it. The Holy Spirit is someone that you know, the Father and the Son have sent to us to glorify Jesus Christ and to complete the work of salvation in our lives. So it's, the Holy Spirit is a vital part of the doctrine of the Trinity and a vital part of the Christian life. Now, many people have noticed, however, that there's a lot less said about the person of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament than there is about the person of Christ, about the person of Jesus the Son. And they, uh, how come the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in most of the salutations, for example, at the beginning of Paul's epistles? Uh, he is mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 2, by the way, in that salutation. So why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned in most of the salutations in the New Testament? Why, isn't the Holy, why don't we have all this teaching about the Holy Spirit's deity and so forth the way we do for Jesus? And my answer yeah. to that is that Jesus gave us the answer to that in John 16 that the Holy Spirit is going to come not to glorify himself, not to draw attention to himself, not to speak on his own, but Jesus said, he will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit comes in order to reveal Christ to us. Now, in, in revealing Christ to us, we find out something about him. We find out something about the Holy Spirit. But it's not about, as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, it's not about him. It's about Jesus. <laughs> 
It's about glorifying the sun. Uh, and many people don't get that. They think that if the Trinity is true, there should be this kind of equal presentation, systematic, theological laying out of the doctrine in a very even-handed way, and we should have, you know, like ten verses about the Father and ten verses about the Son and ten verses about the Holy Spirit should all be... That, that's, that's misunderstanding where we are in the flow of biblical historical redemptive history God is God God he wants us to focus on Christ the New Testament is Christ centered the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to write books that are Christ centered because his mission as Jesus himself said in John 16 verse 13 to 15 is to reveal and glorify Christ just as when Jesus was here his mission was to reveal and glorify the Father. And when we get a handle on that, we understand something very amazing about these three persons. They, each one of these three persons, is concerned about glorifying the other. They don't, they're not worried about them, their own glory. The Holy Spirit's not worried about us glorifying Him. Now, if we demote Him, and deny his deity and deny his personhood and treat him like a thing that we can manipulate, that's going to be a problem. But he's not Why? focused on himself. He's focused on Christ. And Why? we need to be focused on Christ in obedience to what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us about Christ in Scripture. And so the doctrine of Trinity is really a way of understanding what kind of persons the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are and then what kind of persons we ought to be. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, we talked about that passage earlier, but it is introduced by Paul saying, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. He did not worry about his own glory. He put others in, before himself. He came to glorify the Father. He came to save us from our sins. Uh, he humbled himself and the message there is a very practical one we ought to be more concerned about other people's well-being other people's uh, benefit uh, than about ourselves we should not be selfish self-centered but we should be ministering to others caring about others because Christ was more concerned about the glory of the Father than he was his own Wow, that is really powerful, and it's it's so practical. But and it's you know you, you think about these things, but when you really ponder it, um, and how this all works with the Trinity, and how just um, the nature of God and his, 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 who He is, it just makes you just worship, you know. Uh, and I, I'm I've been so blessed. We're actually running out of about to be out of time in a few few minutes, uh, Rob, but I, I could talk about this all night. This has been so eye-opening, um, it's been um, so, this has impacted me, and I'm just worshiping our Lord, um, and seeing the scriptures, and learning more about who He is, and um, I'm really in awe, and uh, so thankful um, for you, and for your, your time of study, and your taking two hours to come and talk with us on this topic, it's amazing. Well, you're welcome. 
if I may, I would like to yeah. let people know uh, about our ministry's website and where Please they do. can get yeah. more information on this uh, issue. Uh, our organization is called the Institute for Religious Research, uh, IRR, and our website is irr.org. And if people will go to that website uh, in the Biblical Christianity section of our website, we have a lengthy multi-part article that I have done called The Biblical Basis of the Doctrine of the Trinity, and it is a very detailed outline study that presents the, uh, the biblical material relating to this doctrine in, in a systematic way. But uh, we have other resources as well on the Trinity and other subjects, but I, I, I would like to mention that. So that's irr.org, and uh, we welcome people to contact our ministry if they have questions and okay. uh, if, you know, for further resources or whatever. And uh, I, listen, I appreciate you taking this time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to definitely... Yeah, it's been good. I'm going to put the link on our Facebook page. I definitely, I'm looking at the outlines, and they are amazing. Um, this is a great study, guys, to get us focused on things of God and to learn doctrine um, and to draw closer to God. Um, so I definitely encourage people to check out the IRR.org website. And just to mention as well, I was... Um, while we were in our conversation here, interview, I was dialoguing with someone who was listening in, and um, they were uh, chiming in on the chat room a little, and they were a witness and apostle. And he, he said that he was very convinced um, that she made a very great case for the Trinity. And he's going to go back and listen to the show again, and he's going to order um, the book that you and Ed wrote. So I'm going to send him these resources as well. So that's, Wonderful. you know, to God, God be the glory. Amen. And we thank you so much, Robin. We definitely want to have you back on because I know that you know so much and you're a wealth of knowledge in a number of different areas. So we would definitely love to have you back on at some point as well. Well, that'd be my pleasure. Okay. And um, you have a wonderful evening. I know Devin's going to hate that he missed out on the interview because he was really <laughs> looking forward to being on with you. <laughs> but, you know, okay. okay. Maybe next time. More yeah, more fun for me. <laughs> hey, I enjoyed it. Thank you. You too. God bless and stay warm up in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. God bless you too. Bye, Rob. Well, folks, that was encouraging and, and enlightening in so many ways for me, as I'm sure it was for you. And please go back and listen to this podcast. Share it with others your friends uh, who don't know Christ or are confused about who Christ is, this is a great um, tool to uh, to effectively share about uh, the nature of our God and our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you guys have a blessed rest of the week, um, a blessed Christmas holiday, and continue to pray for Devin to get better and continue to pray for our show and our future guests and for Rob and for the Institute for religious research as they uh, spread the truth of, of the gospel with others and equip believers to defend their faith. So be sure to join us next week, same time, same place, and we appreciate your support. God bless you all. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. 
that Biblical, biblical theology, theology study The person of God attributes God's word is like a breeze in the tropics And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit He's the king, the priest, and the prophet So please watch as we proceed with the topic uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology That phrase alone, they give some people allergies uh, They say it's not practical enough uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the...